welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that you can now support the podcast via Patreon. I absolutely love bringing you these conversations, and it seems that many of you also thoroughly enjoy listening to them and take value from them. And it's important to me that the podcast remains free and accessible to all, and also advert-free. I have no intention of selling you mattresses, blenders, or anything else. So the question is, why should you pay for something that's free? Well, of course, there's absolutely no obligation. And if you're unable to or choose not to pledge, then that's absolutely fine. And I'm just pleased that you're listening to the podcast and hopefully taking something from it. Your patron support will go towards improving the show, better audio production, and keep the frequency of the episodes up to maybe one or two a week. And Patreon allows you to pledge as little as £1 per episode, and you'll only pay when an episode is released. It's super easy to pledge, and you can cancel at any time. The details are on the show notes, or visit patreon.com forward slash the Words Matter podcast. And together we can continue our mission of encouraging clinicians to critically reflect on their practice, thinking, and relating, so that they can work with people in pain or suffering in a more meaningful, human and effective way. So on this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Marich. Philip is a physiotherapist with a background in musculoskeletal physiotherapy, as well as philosophy, ethnology and psychoanalysis. His doctoral research employed the qualitative methodology of autoethnography to explore the ethical foundations of physiotherapy. More recently, his work has led him to the in-depth exploration and development of environmental physiotherapy, and with that, the relationship between health, physiotherapy, and the question of the environment. And we talk about this area of his work towards the end of the podcast. He's the founder and executive chair of the Environmental Physiotherapy Association, and teaches and researches at UIT, which is the Arctic University of Norway located in Tromso. So in this episode, we speak about his recent paper he wrote with David Nichols, who I spoke with on episode 21 of the podcast, and the paper's titled The Fundamental Violence of Physiotherapy, Emmanuel Levinas's Critique of Ontology and Its Implications for Physiotherapy Theory and Practice, published in Open Physio Journal. We speak about how ontology, epistemology, and ethics relate to each other, and how fundamental this relationship is to physiotherapy. As mentioned, we speak about how the work of the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, whose perspective on ethics and ontology Philip used in his PhD to radically interrogate the theory, practice and identity of physiotherapy. And we speak about the Levinasian notion of otherness, meaning the openness for cultural differences and social diversity which has implications for how we relate to and interact with patients in clinical practice. And we talk about the post-professional era of musculoskeletal practice. And finally, Philip shares the broader implications of his reconceptualization of physiotherapy, which is not just about human health, but ecosystem and planetary health, and how this incorporation of environmental concerns into the project of physiotherapy is greater than the concerns and differences between individual professions and practitioners, but is transprofessional and further contributes to a post-professional era. So this was a really interesting conversation with Philip. He's gone places with his thinking and argument around physiotherapy, which very few have dared to go. And it might appear at first that Philip's strong critique against the current conceptualization of physiotherapy is some sort of professional vandalism or troublemaking. But if you listen closely, 
you'll hear Philip's aim is deconstruction, not destruction, to better understand where and how physiotherapy is, and to begin to offer places where it could possibly go, albeit in a different form. So I bring you Dr. Philip Marich. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Perhaps you can introduce yourself, your perhaps clinical background and the sorts of things that are keeping you awake at night in regards to your intellectual work that you're currently involved in. Yeah, so I'm a, well, first of all, I'm a physiotherapist, I guess. I, I was, my, my undergraduate education uh, I've done in Germany um, and I just, I was talking to a colleague just before, I, I realized I finished in 2002, which sounds scary long time ago now. And I, after that, I worked as a, as a, well, I will say kind of musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapist in a clinic slash rehab center. And I did that for, I think, about eight years. And at the same time, I also followed some of my other interests and passions, uh, one of which included studying philosophy, psychoanalysis and ethnology and some other fun stuff like that. And, um, and then in 2009, I took a cha- beginning of 2009, I took a chance to, to go to New Zealand and pursue a master's degree. Also, originally a, a master's in, in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. And um, somewhere throughout that, I think, first year, maybe second year of that, I met uh, Professor David Nichols, who's also been on your podcast here before. And um, we got talking about our mutual interests in both physiotherapy on the one hand and philosophy on the other. And, and, and I guess we formed a bond over that, that that continues to last. And so I did my master's thesis with uh, Dave Nichols, as well as then my PhD right after. I also worked clinically in New Zealand a little bit after my PhD. And then in the middle of 2019, I've now moved to Norway. And uh, since about half a year ago, I, kind of, I started studying, uh, sorry, working uh, at the UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, which is in uh, Tromsø in Norway. And I'm a member of the staff here in the Bachelor of Physiotherapy program. What a journey you've been on. I mean, both geographically and epistemologically from sports physio. <laughs> To now ethnography or autoethnography and the philosophy that you're engaged in. Yeah, yeah. It's been a fun ride so far. So you're following in on the, on the footsteps of other clinical philosopher theoreticians, including Dave Nichols, who you mentioned, who I know you've worked with and was your supervisor for your PhD. And just to add the pressure, he still remains the most downloaded episode. But seeing as you are the upcoming protege of his... I'm sure you'll blast through his <laughs> four figures. Well, let's see how that goes. <laughs> I have no aspirations. I'm happy to be in the, you know, what's it called, like the, the water behind, you know. like. <laughs> Given your kind of varied intellectual academic work, but also your background as a clinician, we could start in so many places. But I think initially what drew me to wanting to speak to you was about your doctoral work and more recently a paper that you published with Dave, which I guess emerged from your doctorate, which was in the similar vein as, as David's work, this kind of strong philosophical critique of physiotherapy mm. in many different forms. So so really challenging the assumptions which are embedded in practice, assumptions around knowledge, assumptions around how patients are conceptualized and mm. their bodies mm. are related to. So a whole kind of range of different topics. And so maybe we could start by you just introducing that project, that PhD project. What were some of the aims that you started out on and some of the things that you ended up with at the end of it? Yeah, so I think in, in, a, in a very sort of broad overview kind of sense, I think that my PhD was an attempt to try and bring together all those seemingly disparate, thing, disparate things I had been involved in, you know, like physiotherapy on the one side, and then there was this philosophy aspect. And, and to be fair, also a few other aspects, I was like really uh, deeply involved in, in uh, martial arts and traditional martial arts and some of the sort of uh, kind of inspired by some of the philosophies and practices around that. And in, in many ways, it wasn't, my PhD was an attempt to try and make sense of this like weird mix of things that, that 
had a hold on me and that, as you said before, you know, kept me awake uh, during the night. <laughs> so it was a little bit that, you know, to, to, to try and make sense of this kind of weird salad mix of things. Why was it weird to you? So it's interesting that you observe because many people won't perceive it as a as a kind of Moroccan grand bazaar of theories and techniques and knowledge. But to you, it seemed yeah. it seemed curious and a, a kind of mixed salad of ideas. What was so unusual about it? Well, I, I guess that for me anyway, at the time, and maybe bef before the time when I sort of, when I was doing my master's and, and I had met Dave, I wasn't aware that combining philosophy with physiotherapy was much of a thing, like generally in our, in our profession. So it's probably like also partial ignorance because I just wasn't kind of that way involved in the field up to that point. And for my sort of own perception, philosophy and physiotherapy were not supposed to mix, you know, like, I mean, when I was in philosophy, nobody ever asked me when I was like studying philosophy, nobody ever asked me about physiotherapy. And conversely, when, when I was sitting in that clinic, I was working in and I was, I was reading a philosophy book, my colleagues were just going on oh, this weirdo again, you know, like reading this strange stuff. And uh, so I think there was a little bit something there that then kind of the, the particular methodology that I used made a point of that or kind of went straight into that problem of what's the issue with mixing this and so forth or, or why am I mixing it? So methodologically, if I can just kind of jump into that to explain that is I, I used a, I, I used a methodology called autoethnography as a kind of springboard for what I was doing. I don't know that in the end I was actually I actually did an autoethnography, but I certainly used some of its ideas as a springboard to sort of launch off into whatever it was that I was doing. And just to clarify a little bit, you know, in a very sort of basic sense, uh, autoethnography, you know, that you ha it has a kind of add-on to the usual ethnography concept. The ethnography idea is, all right, we go out as researchers and we study a culture of interest and we find out something. The auto in front of that is not a car. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, taking, it's sort of taking some of, I some of the ideas of ethnography uh, a little bit further in the sense that in ethnography, there was, for a long time, there's, there was talk about, oh, there's a real need to really be immersed in the culture that you're studying yeah. because otherwise you don't understand it and so forth. Kind of going native is how it's often described, isn't it? Kind of going native. So, so in the case of ethnography, it's almost like, you just say, okay, I'm not going to study some like foreign culture, but like the culture that I am a part of. So I study the culture through my experience of it, as opposed to asking somebody else how they're experiencing it and, and so on. As an insider. Yeah, as an insider. So it's kind of like the maximum insider in an autoethnography. And for me, it was all right, I'm going to study, uh, you know, physiotherapy as the, my, the culture that I'm professionally involved in. But in some, in, in, a, in a kind of higher sense, I think like autoethnography and in the particular kind of way that I, I used it is, was also a, a kind of question about this distinction between, you know, what is my professional culture and what am I or who am I personally? So some, something about that, a problematizing of the distinction between my professional self and the personal self in a way. So it seemed to me at the time, and, and there are certain technologies in our profession, I would say, that that separate out, okay, so this is kind of your personal stuff and this is your professional stuff and behavior, your professional knowledge and your personal knowledge, and you're supposed to keep them apart. And, you know, your personal stuff is probably just anecdotal. What we need is the hard evidence and, you know, Radhi we could go on there. I, I can see why you're kept awake. I think I'll be kept awake at night from these, these problems that you're... <laughs> I think we're all having them all the time, but it was just maybe a, an effort to put a focus there in some way. So, so what I wanted to say or what I wanted to explore partially also in the beginning was, all right, I am a physiotherapist. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm, I really identify or I, yeah, I guess I still do identify as a physiotherapist in some way. But I, I am also like a, a person with a particular history, with a particular cultural and ethnic background, mm. uh, sort of quite, quite mixed ethnic and cultural background. And I also have strong personal interests uh, and, and I've been sort of strongly influenced by some of those interests. And I can't come into the clinic or do my professional work and just leave that outside the door. It doesn't work that way. I, it doesn't, you know, so and, and pretending to do that also doesn't work for me anymore. So what I want to do is, OK, let's make this like an explicit thing. We, uh, what, I'm, what I want to do is I want to put physiotherapy explicitly and openly in the mix with all of these other things that that have been influencing me for such a long time 
but I'm thinking about when you when you said you know, you felt that completely disaggregating your personal self from your professional self was either impossible or didn't feel quite right. But there's no reason why you have to. Looking at the sorts of knowledge that comes into clinical practice, that personal knowledge, that knowledge that we acquire perhaps through our lives, that is part of clinical practice. So I'm interested to say that you felt that you had to separate, make that distinction. What makes you think there is that distinction? Or you felt that you were professionally obliged to separate out those different positions and forms of knowledge? I think that the things that you mentioned that you know we that are there and that are recognized as being there is more something that I would I would maybe term and maybe hopefully not to complicate complicate the terms but something like your personal professional experience but it very much lives inside your professional practice and your professional thinking and so forth so yes it's personal it's kind of that that the the acquired path that you get through your professional work but it's not about the fact that I don't know, you know, that you're you're from the UK and you're influenced by Victorian culture in this and this way. And this is a really sort of like conscious thing for you that like informs your practice or even informs your practice in a way that, yep, no, I don't want to be that. And we're not having tea at five and, uh, you know, whatever. Six. Six, whatever it might be. Um, so, so for me, it was interesting, like, well, I didn't hear my my personal philosophical influences that were like really informing my life, I felt, I didn't hear them mentioned. I didn't hear anyone ask about them necessarily, which is maybe a strange, like, I don't know, this is a pompous thought to think that somebody would ask about what I'm interested in. And kind of my ethnic background also, I didn't like found represented or, or mentioned, nor did I find that ethnic backgrounds or kind of like personal backgrounds are of interest or, uh, you know, mm. uh, yeah, asked about in, in, in our professional work and thinking. And I think that some of the, you know, like the, the ways, you know, still we, that we, prof we identify professional identity and professional behavior, you know, I mean, this is a crude example maybe, but just in the way that you're kind of not supposed to you're not supposed to mix with your clients in a kind of argue, you know, inappropriate way. You know, you're supposed to keep that part of your personal life out of your professional life. I think that's a very obvious kind of like separation or boundary or border. But there's many more kind of smaller ones of those that like are linked to how we ident how we define our professions, uh, this kind of the scopes of practice, that the terminology that we use, and so forth that that create some kind of distinction. And we can, we can move on, but I just so I'm thinking about what, when you said that about an obvious example is when you you inappropriately socialise with a patient or something. And I felt the fact that I'm even saying it's inappropriate puts places some kind of judgment on it, right? But there, there yes. are gradations of that yeah. when it is acceptable. So the therapeutic use of self, when you're making disclosures about your own personal life and values and experiences for some therapeutic purpose or gain that's okay so if you say to a patient that's got back pain oh yeah i've had back pain too and i found it really hard during the weekend to do my gardening in an order to come to some arriving at some uh, mutual understanding or meaning and empathy all that kind of stuff that's okay so that disclosure of the self that's different to sleeping with a patient but yet they both belong to the same category of and I think that's very much true. I would also, but but I would add to that, that there exists also a discussion about whether or not you should bring in your own injuries and so forth, you know, your own experiences into, there are, you know, I know that a lot of us do this. I've done it gazillion times, uh, certainly. And then and, and a lot of us do this, but there there is a discussion about whether or not that should be done also. And, you know, and how much do I tell you about my, you know, two year journey through ACL recovery? You know, do I tell you about it for two years because that's how long it was? Or, you know, like there's like there's some kind of distinctions being made there or kind of some fine tuning of what's OK, what's not OK. So there is a boundary. That means there is a boundary and there is a question around. Or is not OK, but one way or another, you know, generally speaking, there is a boundary. We're keeping two things separate, which to simplify to some extent are sort of the personal and the professional. So you've got the enviable task of defining for listeners that may not be familiar with some of these terms, 
off this is again off the back of the course health series in which these terms came up pretty much every episode but you state in either your paper or, or the short presentation that you sent me before that physiotherapy is based on on ontology and epistemology and what does that mean can we is there a way that you can provide a a complex explanation which satisfies people that want a complex answer but also just simplify it because there are some practical implications in that seemingly philosophical type language i'm horrified to try and answer that uh, but i will do my best uh, <laughs> so I, I might just just a small step back one more time you know like so what i did in my phd again just to to to, to never lose track of that sort of overview it was i tried to put together physiotherapy with some of my, let's say, philosophical inspirations, some of my experiential everyday practices, you know, the martial arts and whatever. And I tried to put those together with physiotherapy, stir them up and kind of see what comes out. And what came out essentially was on the one hand, a critique of physiotherapy, but on the other hand, also a reconceptualization of physio physiotherapy in some way. So very much so, the critique was about how we understand the physiotherapist or my how i understand myself as a physiotherapist and how i understand what i do on the basis of that and so the reconceptualization kind of mirrored that in that i was trying to engage a different theory of subjectivity is a kind of philosophical ish term and on that basis also connected to that a different theory of action and then on the basis of those i tried to think about well what does this mean you know how do you do this in practice and what what is this kind of different physiotherapy practice so that was that, that's the goal. That was the sort of overarching goal, but also over, in an overarching sense, the outcomes of of what I was doing. So the sorts of actions that physiotherapists are engaging in will come from the sorts of the way in which they conceptualize themselves as a profession, and also the sorts of knowledge that they value too, and they place yes. within their yes. within their practice. So so you're not dodging the question. Damn. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, so, yeah. Good point. I'm trying to get around it, I guess. <laughs> so, okay. In a, in a really, really simple way, I think the, 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 that basic answer is, kind of, is just what you said there. So the, to say that physiotherapy is based on ontology and epistemology means that physiotherapy is based on a certain body of knowledge, like epistemologically acquired knowledge, let's say. Uh, equate the term epistemology with knowledge for a moment here. Um, so physiotherapy is based on a particular type of knowledge and on a particular type of understanding of who and what is the therapist and who and what is the patient. And then on that basis, the, 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 the so-called therapeutic relationship is entered, right? And we begin to interact on the basis of that knowledge and those sort of pre-existing definitions. At least that's what it looks like on the outside anyway. Right. And, and kind of upon reflection, yeah. we will often agree with this. So that, that was kind of the simple explanation of what it means to say that physiotherapy is based on ontology and epistemology, on a particular professional knowledge, on a definition of, you know, on a particular understanding of what a therapist or physiotherapist in my case is and what a patient is. Yeah. And, and so just on that point, I'm just going to signpost and embed this part of the conversation. So you wrote, a, as I said at the beginning, a recent paper with David Nichols, which is in the journal Open Physio Journal. And the title of the paper was The Fundamental Violence of Physiotherapy, Emmanuel Levinas's Critique of Ontology and Its Implications for Physiotherapy Theory and Practice. And so I'll, I'll make sure I link that brilliant paper to the show notes. It goes into, into most of this stuff, if not all of it. But on the basis of that, again, just trying to link physiotherapy epistemology with how physiotherapists and clinicians act with their patients if you like and do physiotherapy is that you state in the paper that it's that physiotherapy is underpinned by positivism and that this means that there's an that every object has a distinct nature there's essence that resides within that object whether it's the body or the knee or a neuron or anything else and that we behave in accordance or we behave consistently with that view, if you like, that epistemology. So I probably completely bastardized your statement in the paper. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But I'm just trying to get a sense of, or if you could give a sense of how the epistemological view in your, in your mind plays out or how those different epistemological views plays out in clinical practice. 
so I had this uh, when I so one of the main inspirations that I drew on in my PhD was this uh, philosopher of ethics called Emmanuel Levinas, and at the time when I first sort of I'm going to say met him via reading his books basically and kind of studying philosophy through his books. Uh, I was working in a, in a in a physiotherapy clinic, and um, Levinas's thing. One of Levinas's thing is that he really sort of is against uh, uh, knowledge as the foundation of anything. Uh, it's one of his kind of big issues, I guess. But then you know, like at some point throughout my studies of this strange stuff and strange thinking, I, I was going into one of our treatment rooms in the clinic I was working in, and I had my uh, what's it called? You know, my my assessment sheet with me, and my pen with me, and the, you know the board that the sheet was sticking to, and and I entered into this room, and and I you know did my first things and sat down in front of my assessment sheet and started talking to this client. And this particular client said to me, "This is not okay. You can't do that. You can't come in here." pretending like you know everything you're going to ask me your specific questions you know about my body and this and that and you're going to tell me what to do and how to do it and so forth and you're going to tell me that you know better about my body than I do I had not even opened my mouth yet and and my initial reaction was all right well you know I might have to refer you somewhere else but <laughs> uh, the, the truth of the, I mean the truth of the matter was you know, the client had seen through me in a way, through me as a physiotherapist. I was coming in there with a with a baggage of knowledge about, you know, the body and how it should move and why it hurts and how it hurts. And You had a clipboard? I had a clipboard. That's it. That's the word I was looking for. I had a clipboard. And if you have a clipboard, I mean, you know, you've got the knowledge. The relationship is cemented with the clipboard. Yes, exactly. Um, I should use those more often at home. <laughs> so somehow, you know, it, that really shook me. It really shook me. As, as strange as it was, it really shook me. And it really resonated with something I was hearing and reading and sort of Levinas' theory around ethics and ontology and epistemology. And the thing that it, it, it probably touched on or resonated with was that if we sort of paraphrase Levinas's argument a little bit, if you enter into such a relationship or any relationship on the basis of knowledge and clearly defined uh, uh, ideas of, you know, who are you and who's the other person or something like that, you foreclose opportunities for it being differently, for something else appearing than what you've known before, what you think you should find out, what you think you should do or the other person should do. You're foreclosing a possibility of you being different and the mm. other person being different than what you expect. That foreclosure to some extent or that foreclosure of other possibilities of otherness, if you will, is also sort of this counter argument against sort of reductive philosophies like positivism that, you know, clearly specify this is that and this is that and this is how this is and this is, you know, who Ollie and how Ollie is and how Philip is and who Philip is and, and all those things. And so Levinas puts ethics first, right? Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's the movement of where his philosophy goes, essentially. So in, in a kind of, you know, if you recognize that, you know, there is this kind of, foreclosure that happens if we don't put ethics first, or let's say if we put ontology and epistemology first, then we have to sort of ask ourselves, okay, well, what is there? But, you know, uh, in, in, to be fair to Levinas a little bit, you know, his own inquiry began from a slightly different angle in the way that his question really was, was whether ethics and, if you will, morals or morality are just a kind of joke, like an optional something, or in which case, you know, the, the sort of humans are kind of, in actual fact, bad, but they need, and ethics is about controlling that, you know, badness or something like that. Or, you know, is there something more to ethics, something more fundamental? Let's get to, if you, if you can, if you want, is to get to your, I suppose, your critique of physiotherapy. So you've reconceptualized it, but what was the... What are you reconceptualizing it from? So, so in the conceptualization that you're perceiving it to be, and the things that were kind of this kind of mixed salad of ideas, just give you know a, a description of what that looks like, and then the reconstruction that developed from your your doctorate. How does it look? How is it? How is it different? And what are the implications? 
So, right. I, I mean, we've kind of, where, where we started from and what we already said is that there's some kind of problem with this sort of pretty packaged knowledge that we enter into relationships with. So my, my critique was sort of fairly radical. And again, following Levinas, I said that this kind of the foreclosure of other possibilities or of otherness is, is a violence. You know, Levinas describes this very strongly as a, this is a violence. You can't, you know, you can't do that, let's say, to people. And if you do it, you're like proper setting them up for you know, all kinds of other things to be done to them. Mm. So I guess building on that or riffing off of that, I said, all right, so there's a problem with knowledge, fundamentally a problem with like knowledge. So what we need to do is we need to chuck that out. And I was very much like, a no, in this case, let's do the baby and the bathwater. So, all right, we kind of chuck out knowledge. Now, if you go further, like another step forward from that, if all of our doing, like our clinical practice and our you know, professional practice and whatever is based on a particular knowledge, the same problem exists also with our practice. So out it goes, right? Like out with all we, all we do, because all we do is at that fundamental level, uh, a violence or is violent to, to, to it, it kind of, it, it reduces reality and the other to one or another thing. So... And then I went another step further, which was that, okay, so if you take all, kind of all of that away and you're kind of sitting back and suddenly you're in your, okay, so you're going to work patient-centered um, and, and you're really going to sit back and you're going to listen and so forth. My problem with that was even when you do that, you still have a very clear, let's say, therapeutic intention. You want the patient to get better or healthy according to some definition of better and some definition of healthy. Wherever it might linger, that the definition or that hope that working towards that particular thing is still there. So you still have a, a therapeutic intention that follows your knowledge, the practice that you associate with it and so forth. So I said, all right, out goes the therapeutic intention. Let's not even try to help people. At least for a moment while we're kind of exercising this, this uh, thought experiment. And the fun, fundam, final thing that I said was, all right, so, you know, how we, it's not just our knowledge of the other, but also how we identify or uh, define ourselves that's a problem here. So out that goes also. No more bathwaters and babies <laughs> to be filled in there. Everything's out. And so the question then was, all right, what's left, right? Like, what, what do you have left when, when all of that is out? And in following Levinas, what I said, well, actually what you have left is just that relationship between something that might be called a self in some way and some something or some one other, right? <sighs> so I started looking, okay, so what is, what is it with this relation? How does it function? How is it like, how can we describe it in some way? Like what is it to be found there that might be valuable for us to eventually, you know, have something to do again because we've just chucked out everything that, you know, we stand on. And do you bring this stuff back in? I mean, at some point, it has to come mm. back in. That in some way. I get not necessarily starting with, with knowledge, but starting with the ethics. I can accept that. And then what would emerge from that, then you can make some kind of judgment about the sorts of knowledge that you value. But at some point it comes back in. In what form does it come back in? Yes, it does in some ways. But like to, to get there, like there's a few sort of steps to go through. You know, For me, I, I mean, the thing was to, you know, to... to to say that actually, you know, physiotherapy is not based on knowledge and it's not based on our definition of the other person and so forth, but actually on a relationship, a kind of a very fundamental relation. And that's its foundation. In some ways, that's quite edifying. You know, it's quite nice. It's sort of a seemingly ethical movement of, okay, so mm. before everything, before all of what we know and all of what we do, before any of that, before what, how we define the other person under that, we're already in this relationship, right? In this kind of relation. And so in the first movement that maybe is, uh, I don't, yeah, it's, it's complex, but not complex. It's a kind of, it was a kind of terminological game. I, I argued that, you know, if you follow this idea that the relationship is first, there's actually something there that, that suggests that uh, the self and its knowledge are not the beginning of the world, but in some ways already a response to the other. And in fact, actually, yeah, and in, in, in being a response to the other, it's kind of like we're all, it's almost like the, the self subjectivity is called forth or called upon by the other. So I said, oh, well, that's good. So the self is professional, right? It's a kind of familiar term. The other thing that I went into then was, okay, so in this kind of like, with, again, if I follow Levinas and I'm doing that essentially all the time and I'm just turning terms around then, 
um, is um, there is something that's sort of very material, like in, in all of this. So, uh, you know, I'm being called forth or upon by that other person into that relationship. And my response, me saying hi to you or, you know, how are you or whatever, it's a, it's a very physical thing. Like it requires my organs, you know, my, you know, the, the sound waves, the, all of that stuff. So there is something physical in me responding to you. And so I said, okay, so we're back in sort of familiar land once again. You know, we're professional, physical something. Now, in that fundamental relation, as Levinas describes it, the self in this first response is a kind of, uh, is a service for the other. It's the, the self is for the other because, uh, strange argument, you know, if you, if you were floating freely in space, you possibly would have a fairly sad existence uh, in, in that you would have nobody to talk to and, you know, nobody to bounce ideas off like we're doing today and so on. So, on. so actually, in, in some way, you know, me, uh, I'm saying me, it's kind of not, not me, Philip, a little bit more abstracted me. Um, me seeing you and hearing you does something for you. And it's kind of, it's my primary function before I say anything else. So, so again, I turned, I just played around terminologically and quite a lot etymologically as well. And I said, okay, so service, that term mm. actually like relates etymologically to the term therapy. And so what we've come up with is now, okay, so subjectivity at this fundamental level is a professional physical therapy called forth by the other in and as this body and in service of or for the other. So what I did there is, okay, so the terms kind of came back. Some of the terms that we know came back, but they've been actually like entirely like taken away from, from our profession in a, in a common sense mm. and relocated this. You've cleaned them. You've washed them. Maybe. Yes, <laughs> maybe. Uh, so dislocated from our profession in a common sense and relocated into a definition of subjectivity. So what is the self? Before, whether it's this professional or that professional, a carpenter, uh, uh, an osteopath, uh, a politician or whatever, right? So this is where kind of like uh, the first wave of it, those terms coming back was. Yes. Okay. And then I took it further from there. So this idea of relating to the other, this otherness that you've talked about, and that the, the profession or professions should be based around that is that that's the that's the starting point and how we how we act in relation to the other it's kind of the ethics if you like that's the starting point rather than assertive skills or knowledge or expertise or competencies or even professional values defining us and so some would say well, that's just relationship-centered care like or person-centered care but it, you, like you said, it's going a step further than that because conceptions of person-centered care still still e emphasize the professions doing person-centered care. So the profession comes first. Yeah, yeah. There's certain goals associated with it, also, right? There's certain aims that are still being uh, uh, chased after, right? And in, in this kind of conception, you know, as you as you described it, this kind of this radical reconceptualization. And I just wonder, what are the practical... Assuming we can't ever think that either it's got to be bathwater or a baby, but chucking them both out is you know, not realistically going to happen. What's the kind of middle ground? What, how far could you get to with this? Or what could universities and institutions and clinicians take from it, which is, isn't so much of a... I mean, I guess it's all a compromise, is it? But what could they take from it without necessarily kind of reinventing the, the, themselves? What would you like people to take from it? Yeah, what I, I might have to add to that, you know, to what I was also kind of exploring, I guess, and, and, and then in that way also arguing was that there is something that happens at that fundamental level that's very meaningful therapeutically, so to speak, right? Um, so actually what happens at that fundamental level before you sort of come in with your knowledge and your definitions of this and that and so forth, by being in this relation 
I, I use the term accompaniment. You're kind of, you're accompanying the other person. And that accompaniment, I argued, and, and, and in some ways still believe, I think is a very uh, important sort of fundamental therapeutic thing, which I think relates very much to sort of the current still talk about patient-centered care and so forth, and we're just sort of being with that other person, supporting them on their journey and all of those sort of edifying things. And it's kind of in that non-doing that that happens, right? Like you just, you sort of pull back and you're just with that other person, like don't pull back your knowledge, pull back your, what you want to do and what you think, you know, the, 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 the range of motion that their elbow should have and like pull all of that back and, and just be with that person, you know, like in that kind of, uh, you know, I was talking about passivity and accompaniment quite a lot, you know, how that accompaniment happens in that passivity. And, and what I said was like, if you go kind of back that far, you kind of actually create this space for, for that person maybe. And if we want to take that back to terms that we're maybe familiar with, I, I was saying that, all right, so maybe we've like just now explored a different way to mobilize someone than the ways we normally think. Like we, we mobilize them by taking away our mobilization techniques. So, yeah, I guess I was like gradually like trying, okay, so what else is there? There's something going on here and how can we amplify that thing that's going on or those things that are happening in that relationship? What's, what's the possibility to amplify them? So I was saying, well, actually, it's kind of a practice in itself to think through some of these things and to realize that, oh, yeah, there's a different kind of mobilization coming here and, and, and like something else is happening. I'm providing this new space for the person to be like this one day and like that another day and to, you know, I don't know, to grow an arm where their legs should be growing and the other way around and whatever, you know. I'm just like really opening up a space for all sorts of difference and wonder, if you will. So I don't think what you are saying is that clinicians go into an interaction as a kind of tabula rasa, this blank slate where there is no knowledge or no no values and they just sit back and, or maybe you are, I'm, I'm trying to think what it sounds like is saying being with the patient, just being and not using your professional knowledge to kind of steer them or force them into some therapeutic goal or even to even your professional knowledge and identity forcing you into some examination or wanting to achieve some certain task but sitting back and relating to that individual doesn't mean to say that you jettison knowledge or you don't recognize you have you know, whether you because the truth is you can't turn that tap of cognition off like your brain is there and there's knowledge in there whether you jettison it and throw it out with the bathwater it's there anyway so it's kind of what do you do about it and where do you place it yeah yes you're right so i think there there is another thing that you know with this with with this idea that i was following was that okay so so in some ways subjectivity is this odd professional physical therapy always and all the time anyway so there is something that's always happening whether you do it or not and whether you whatever you do against it so to speak on the other hand there is like you say you know there's it's not like and Levinas was saying this, like actually you can't put that into practice because as soon as you practice something, you, it's connected to some kind of knowledge, some kind of ontology and epistemology and so forth. And just to be clear, the term being is a totally anti-Levinasian, like it's one of the terms that he riled against, but for sake of ease, being with the other person is okay. Um, so you can't like leave that away. So in some ways, a simple takeaway from this is to recognize, and then we're going back to that paper that you mentioned, to recognize that in whatever we do and think and so forth, like the best solution you come up with, there is a problem because it's closed off something else. So to always understand, like whenever you're say this, do that, think this, think that, keep in mind time and time again that there is a problem with that. It could just be different. It could just be different no matter how you know, well, you've researched, you know, whatever you've researched and pain and neck mobility and whatever. Always like the, the, the kind of almost the Levinasian thing is always, always keep in mind that you, you can't be content and complacent and say, well, now we've got it. We've got patient-centered care sussed out and it's all, all is well. So Levinas has this thing where like he said, it took me years to like, I think it might have just been last year that I really understood what, what, what that meant. Um, it's a scary thought because I've tried to read him for like so, such a long time, like two decades. Uh, he, he says that ethics is critique, right? So it means that the other, you know, that, that 
other that we meet in this, you know, therapeutic or whatever, just fundamental relation, is that which which like reminds us or kind of, you know, shouts in our face that hey, things could just be different. That that person that we meet could always fall outside the frame of whatever kind of you think and do, and just to 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 acutely keep that awareness is actually what in my PhD I then ended up calling anamnesis because anamnesis has something to do with, you know, the, the memo part of it is something to do with memory. And I said, okay, so anamnesis, what if anamnesis was actually like remembering that always and always and always, that whenever we close something, we should open it again, you know, so, or remember that we just closed it. You know, it kind of resonates with this idea of just inherent uncertainty in practice and that, using knowledge and framework to provide a kind of full sense of certainty partly so we can begin to move through practice because if everything is so wobbly and so shaky it's like a what are those bridges that you know the rope bridges between two canyons if it's like you just can't you don't move because it's so shaky you you don't know where to place your emphasis or attention or make that decision so this isn't may not be the focus of, of your work but certainly speaks to me that i suppose it's being as you said attuned to that uncertainty and not kind of shying away from it, but recognizing that epistemic humility that we don't know, there could be other possibilities, I'm not certain, um, and being comfortable with that. Yes, yes. I think, that's a, I think that's a big part of it that in some ways provides a, a, a kind of what I, what I tend to call like a feel-good takeaway, a takeaway that we can work with in some way. Yeah, yeah, there is, uh, that's absolutely one part, you know, there was other parts, you know, where I said, okay, so that's kind of the, 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 the retreating part of it, the kind of let's take back what we just said and what we just did and open up a new possibility and so forth, or open up space for possibilities or something. The other part was I, I also thought about, okay, well, how can we amplify this accompaniment aspect? Like, how can we accompany more in, in many, in some ways, maybe like reap the benefits of amplifying that part? Um, and uh, yeah, do more in that direction, even though we can never do it perfectly. So I thought, okay, so what is this accompaniment thing? What's ha- what's happening there? It's not just that you know I am sort of the, the the service that the self provides to the other is physical, but it's also for the physicality of the other. It's kind of for that body of the other at some fundamental level. So I thought, all right, so so that means that this kind of fundamental physical therapy. To build on that would mean to provide for the physical needs of, of the other. And so you could say that this is about food, shelter, and clothing, and making sure that the environment that people live in, natural and built, uh, is, uh, well, you know, salutogenic or whatever the current term for that would be, you know, like it's health, it's conducive to their health. So in some ways, physical therapy then, you know, at, at this level where I'm not concerned whether it's according to current professional boundaries anymore provision of shelter food and clothing and you know uh, appropriate ecology and, and and society is physical therapy it's for the body the physical existence of the other yeah so i suppose one question that i had was whether or not when reconceptualizing physiotherapy is there something in physiotherapy or about physiotherapy which is different to other similar professions, other similar physical manual type professions, because it seems to me that relating to the other and you know placing ethics at the centre of of practice and care creates a abstract meta profession. I mean, there's nothing inherently special about physiotherapy when placing ethics at the centre. Yes. So if it hasn't been, it hasn't become evident already. Let's just state it very clearly. Uh, Dave Nichols and I have been hanging out with each other for too long and too often. So there's certainly some things that I think in our, our thinking that resonate very much, if not a lot of things. But I think, okay, so there's two levels here. On one level, so in, in, our, in our profession, we've been talking about something like the need for change for quite a while. Now, if we're, I don't know, I don't know if it's honest or if we're radical or something like that, like radical in the sense of going to the roots of things. If you want to change something, you kind of have to change it sort of root and branch. And what I did in my PhD, and I only realized this, really realized this in hindsight, kind of, I don't know, over the course of the last two years, is that 
what I did there was really like I really sort of uprooted the whole thing and the terms and I robbed the profession of its terms, the, the, the terms that it protects and, and, you know, all of that. And it seems like it's radical, like also in that literal sense of going to the root. But it also, I, I'm inclined to argue that it's necessary if you really want to come up with something new. So, and, and the new thing that you come up with uh, is not necessarily going to look exactly like the old thing. Because if it does, like, there's also a problem with it. Like, how is it new? Like, what's the difference here? Like, there is no difference. Which is one of the reasons why I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I am or we are living through this, like what I said to Dave once, you know, we're living through this tyranny of clinical implications. Like everything you think has to be fitted back into the clinic room. How are you going to do something different? You know, like if, if like everything you do and think always has to come back into that and come back into that old frame and come back into that old frame. Like if you really like, let's, okay, let's do something different, right? We take apart the whole thing and start sort of screwing things together building something new and whatever. And admittedly, for me, it very much goes into a kind of, I don't know, into this discourse of the post-disciplinary -post something like this, you know, like where, where professional boundaries are no longer as rigid as they have been and many and oftentimes also still are in my phd i actually ended up like referring to that as the unprofessional you know like it's like not that way but like what happens is what is needed in a particular context at a particular time and it could look like a mobilization of a joint but it also could look like lending someone a hand while they're building their house yeah and it would still be for their body and for the better movement and health of their body. So it does very much go into that direction. But I also did in my PhD sort of like explore a little bit like, okay, so, but let's go to some, something that's like closer, clo closer to old home still. And I went into like this little bit of an exploration of touch and, you know, how can touch be more, uh, sorry, how can touch be less directive and more just accompaniment? Because I felt, feel, and I believe that there is huge value in that. So what I, what I ex ended up exploring there is like, okay, so if you, you want to touch someone, but, but without particular intention, maybe it's not the direction of your PA that's so important because the direction is a particular intent, is an expression of an intention, right? And maybe it's not about like touching someone at their neck when they have neck pain, but on, you know, on the left side, but on their right knee, because for whatever, you know, I don't know, this is going to sound horribly magical, but for whatever magical reason, they need touch on their right knee. And all they need is like your hand, like, you know, some, like somebody being there for them. I mean, and I did write about this in my, uh, in my uh, PhD a little bit also, you know, this kind of like basic maternal thing that, you know, like when, when as a child, when you hurt yourself, uh, speaking for myself, maybe only, but, and, and maybe I, I have been in a privileged position that I had a mother around. When I hurt myself, I usually, I would go to my mom. You know, I would lean on her shoulder. I would cry, oh, man, man, this and that. I, uh, and 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 she would be there. And yeah, okay, she would give good advice and all that. But who listened? Who whoever listened to that, right? Um, I would just be there. I all, only just needed to be there with her. And then eventually, I'm all right. I'm okay again. I can go. And so something I think that like okay, so we are a very sort of we are very manual professions. We have this. I mean, first of all, we are allowed to be manual, right? And, and, uh, and, and I think we also have actually developed some skills, regardless of their malicious intent, so to speak. Um, and that can be put to good use in a little bit more of a gentle way. It's like it's nearly aggressively gentle. Hmm. Like not putting anything into that, you know, like not the pressure, not the this direction, a death and stretch here and die there, you know, that, but like physically like be with someone give you know to give comfort i think there is huge value in that and i think that that's where kind of like okay this is like from the old world you know we can take some something with us because that is also something that deeply people need like physically and mentally and spiritually and like all sorts of other ways and just to, i guess to push you on that so even when you say you know, someone comes in with neck pain. I'm going to simplify this this example. I know you didn't necessarily mean it this way, but you don't necessarily push in the neck, but you you interact with their knee because for whatever relational, intuitive reason, 
you perceive that that's the area that needs touching. But even you calling it a knee, even you calling it a knee is relying on some, even the fact you know that there's a knee there and it's not their toe, you know that it's a knee because you've got some anatomical knowledge there. And then someone says, well, how are you going to touch them, Philip? Like, you're going to touch them which way? Describe to me. And you knowing the contours mm. of the knee and the fact there are bony bits and soft bits and the soft bits might be nicer. To, you might think it's nice to be touched in this part of the knee. It still requires some anatomical. So a priori knowledge around the anatomy and the structure of that individual. And they've got a knee and it's not their elbow or their neck. So at what point does it, you know, kind of, it comes back to that kind of blank slate that it's always there. You can't unknow this stuff. And it comes in, even if you do your best to try and just relate to the person and not front load it. Mm -hmm. I think it comes back to this thing around um, um, keeping that other thing alive as a tension in whatever you end up doing. I mean, in some ways, what I'm talking about here is, I don't know, maybe I'm a big softie, but like if you feel really bad and all you need is a hug and then that, the way the hug feels, that's how you touch the person. And, you know, I mentioned the knee, but, you know, of course, it doesn't really matter if, if it's the knee or whatever. Um, uh, so I'm kind of advocating for something like that, you know, some, uh, uh, um, which, is, by the way, is very difficult to sell professionally also. And I think like to your, but to your point, you know, like, yeah, you know, you will end up doing this or that and so forth. And... And the reason you go to your knee is also some kind of reason, right? And and uh, and you're going to do that, but again, it's about keeping this tension alive between like, uh, you know, there's like, okay, so I'm going to try and be specific here, but there's also maybe something else and something like softer, something gentler, something more basic that is maybe, just maybe, and this is a possibility that I believe we need to allow, just maybe means more therapeutically to that person than this specific thing that I always keep coming back to because I can't help myself bringing my baggage along. An hour into our conversation, we've, we've finished on the knee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that horrible. We need to go somewhere else quickly. But what happened to the baby in the bathwater? We're now back on knees and... They're out. They're still out. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to touch on that we haven't touched on or you want to talk about? We kind of, as we thought, we've kind of been around the, the, the different conceptual houses. Maybe just that last point that so so one thing, you know, with this kind of dislocation of physiotherapy from itself that, that I played with. So an, another way to say what, what some of what I said before is that physiotherapy in some ways is based on a fundamental colonial act. That colonial act consists in claiming a professional territory, you know, I guess for osteopathy also and for chiropractic also. And by the way, you're on our territory, so please move aside. We protect our title, you know, officially it's called protection of the title and it's the scope of practice, which is a very territorial definition, actually. And and uh, and so if we're talking today very much about, uh, you know, post-colonialism and, and like the decolonial and how to decolonialize our practice and our thinking and so forth, we would actually have to go so far as to say, well, all right, you know, it's about restitution. It's kind of like restitution of this territory that we've claimed, giving it back to whatever. You know, I think Dave sometimes says, you know, to the commons, you know, to kind of to, to give it back to the people, uh, to, to not claim a particular space so that it can maybe be shared more freely. Right. But you need to essentially it means you need to undo this thing at its foundation to, to then find out gradually what else might we do? And so, you know, it brings us back to these kind of post-disciplinary and so forth ideas. So that's maybe just another way to say some of what we were talking about before. Um, I think that it's very interesting. You know, you, I, I was listening to your AMA that you just put out a few, uh, when was it? Yesterday, two days ago, something yeah, like Yeah, like this. a few days ago, yeah. Uh, you were talking about this flattening and you were kind of equating it like the flattening of professional identities, you know, should there be one profession or many and this kind of question. And you use the term flattening and in the same sentence you use the term like general, like, like flat or kind of general profession, something like that. Yeah. For me, I think it's more that the flat and the general, actually they're opposite from each other. The flat mean is, is a multiplication actually, because it, it makes possible that all sorts of weird and wonderful and different things can pop up as they're needed, when they're needed, where they're needed, 
and then disappear again and you know something else appears somewhere else and so forth that's what the flattening is about it's not about having one generic generalized profession but about the myriad possibilities and opening up many many more possibilities even than there are now within let's say our three professions yeah you're right and i think i probably wasn't thinking when i used the term i guess i just was just imagining looking at this landscape of these hills and you've got a little, a little flag that says physio there's a little hill there and there's another little maybe smaller hill that says osteopathy and that's separate from the physio hill and then you got in the in the distance you've got the chiropractic yeah. hill and there's a little flag and i suppose just looking out from this vantage point we're shooting at each other also on those hills i can see the warfare going on i can see it as you're speaking yeah 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 exactly or throwing stones or whereas looking out from this vantage point just seeing not seeing those those constructs but just a flat you know not not the hills but just a sea of professionals called whatever yes. yeah a, a sea in which what is professional so the sea image is very good actually like is is it appears where the wind creates the wave so to speak so it's not defined or called one or another thing before necessarily but it's like what ollie needs today for whatever reason ollie needed that to be called physiotherapy today maybe maybe not i think that's a very important part of kind mm. of where all of this kind of brings us to to really like a real reinvention of all things therapeutic and again we might just might be a bit of a pandora's box but taking your reconceptualization of physiotherapy and also professional not professionalism but professionalization from a regulatory point of view and that assurance of quality so the so for example you said a mobilization might look like helping someone paint their house the associate whatever the kind of general society of this new profession that we've reconstructed will want to know that you're doing the house painting service thing in an appropriate and safe way and there'll have to be a set of competencies that you'll have to be assessed against so then so you, you, you've still got to regulate and protect the person that the, the ethics that you're placing at the forefront of your practice how do you ensure that that ethics is maintained and upheld and so then you've got to begin to break this thing down into a series of violations and competencies i'm afraid to say something that's just going to put me in a particular box and so foreclose possibilities for other things right but maybe some of what i'm saying makes it easier to understand if i that 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 uh, I, I did have uh, as a as a youth i, I did have uh, admiration for for the punk whatever that is and uh, and and i am not entirely sure that you always must regulate everything that 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 is difficult to do and and realize is a different story but that i believe it can be explored nonetheless right at least so would you have would you have brain surgery by an unregulated a person that you or you know, or your mother or your family member would you be happy that they go to a brain surgeon that's not regulated or i know that there are these questions look i know i know that there are these i know that there are these questions but the point is to to to, to discuss them it's not to have the answers now like i don't think that's the case like i, I yeah i i i hear you i hear the thinking and i know what the problem is the secret of this entire podcast is i was trying to do brain surgery on you and buy into my argument <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if it worked, but uh, you know, I know that these questions are there, but it's not like let's not use any of those arguments to to too quickly dismiss other other possibilities. I think that's very important. Which brings me to maybe my last point, if I can, if we do have another minute. So for me, also, you know, the the thing that kind of closed my PhD for me in terms of like, all right, let's kind of move, yeah, close in terms of like finish that part of of my kind of came at the end of that thinking was. All right, so I've been playing around with this term physical therapy, and it was kind of this very individual thing that's inside the body of a subject and whatever. And I realized that there is a problem where if you kind of, you always just think about your responsibility for another human, right? Like it's kind of, it's a very limited and kind of purposively focused type of responsibility and actualization of this physical therapy idea. When in fact, our bodies are, are always related to much more than just other humans. You know, we're related to the, to the air outside, to the trees. And, you know, I'm looking outside at a, at a little hill here with trees on it. You know, I'm in some ways related to that as well. And the oxygen that's provided by those trees and there's other animals and biodiversity and so forth that I depend on and so forth. And, and so what that actually brought me to in the end was, okay, let's continue my etymological game. And I look into the term physio 
as you know as opposed to you know also as related to the physical and and i realized okay so this has to do with the term nature right fuses like whatever i'm not good at um uh, pronouncing the, the original greek terms but uh, you know where i kind of took that from for myself it was okay so actually what i was talking about is not specifically even limited to humans it's like a it's a much broader thing it's something about a fundamental responsibility and relatedness to all sorts of otherness human other than human this and that and so suddenly i was like okay so actually if we really we we've taken everything apart you know the baby's out the bathwater is out they're not coming back um we actually have to do this kind of revision of physiotherapy ecologically like way bigger like we have to integrate the environmental into this in some way and so i guess that's kind of where i've been busy ever since I found myself in a clinical situation after my PhD where where that was amplified, the wish to continue in that direction. And and I've been busy with that and kind of we've been now kind of internationally, globally exploring environmental physiotherapy more and more and what that means, you know, to, to understand that health is not just a question of human health, but is always already a question of ecosystems health and the health of I don't know that that animal species, this animal species, and the health, you know, or the 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 way that you know our houses are built and whatever you want, you know, to integrate into that. And uh, it's been an incredibly exciting field. Uh, I think we are really, as a profession, and and as healthcare professions generally, and maybe as the world in general, we're really kind of in a process of rewriting, you know, how we think about about the world and and how we think about our fundamental sort of global society what it consists of what we are responsible for i think it's an incredibly exciting time and 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 as as crazy as maybe some of what i said sounded i think it actually relates to a lot of what's happening at the moment and across the world you know with this kind of broader movement so i think in terms of how the environmental physiotherapy stuff relates to some of the things we've been talking about before and maybe especially this question of the of the sort of post disciplinary or whichever you want to call it is that I think it's relatively simple. You know, if you if you bring the environment and questions like sustainability or terms like sustainability and the environment into physiotherapy and you start thinking and doing with them, of course, you're necessarily kind of working across disciplinary boundaries. You have to work in an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary or, you know, post-disciplinary manner in some way. You have to engage with other disciplines and and work across them and, and so on. So ultimately, this is also being done more and more across the healthcare professions. And, and I think in, on the one hand, what that means is it invites us musculoskeletal professionals, uh, you know, and physiotherapists, osteopaths, and so forth into that conversation and into thinking about what we might be able to contribute to sort of this complex social, ecological reality of health. And on the other hand, when we understand the connections between society, environment, and individual health, it kind of also brings up this, this idea or thought that maybe planting a tree, saving a whale, building a new park where there was a road or something like this, you know, and I'm mm. probably random examples, but doing some entirely different, let's say, socially important uh, action or ecologically important uh, practice might just as well be understood as a healthcare in intervention or a therapeutic practice. And so the question then becomes, you know, why and where do you draw the boundary now? And, and do you necessarily have to? So you're, that's, I think, the mm. an important link anyway between this question of the post-disciplinary and the environmental and how they fit together. I'll certainly link your Environmental Physiotherapy Association website. Thank you. We didn't get time to speak more about that, but there's always there's many more podcasts to, to be done. Philip, thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's great, great and humbling to have a chance to talk about this. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.